so Sandy and I were talking at the, um, the meet and greet about how much we both like to read. Um, and it's funny because I have that as part of my sermon this morning, <laughs> that we both like to read. So uh, while I'm setting up here, we're going to be in 1 Samuel, the beginning of 1 Samuel. Um, so yeah, Sandy and I were just talking about how we like to read. We both like to read mysteries. We both like to um, read whenever we get the chance. I, um, when I take Rochelle to her tennis lessons or to her cello lessons, I love that I get like a half an hour at a time to read. When I go on vacation, I'm happy reading on the airplane or reading just sitting by the pool. When we take road trips, I'm in the front seat reading. Um, not while I'm driving, but you know, front seat reading. I like to read. I like to read fiction. I don't like to read nonfiction. I maybe read one, if not two, no more than three nonfiction books a year. I'm not a big nonfiction book reader. Um, and this is, of course, outside of what I read for work. But um, what most people don't know, though, and I don't even think my parents or Rick know this about me, Rochelle does, um, but I usually read about 25% into the book, and then I read the last page. <laughs> I do, I do, I do. I read the last page. And a lot of the time, the last page doesn't tell us a whole lot because the climax would have happened a few pages before that. Um, but for some reason, I don't know when I started this or why I started this, but I jump to the last page and just read that last page. And sometimes it's only a paragraph or sometimes it's a couple lines. It just depends on how much is on that last page. But there's something about it that says, where am I going? There's something about it being like a beacon of where am I going in this story? And then as I read the rest of the book, I get to see the journey that it takes to get there and how we end up with that last page. There's something about it. I like to see the journey as we get there. I do not peek at Christmas presents, no. <laughs> so I bring that up and share that secret about myself um, because today we're going to start with the end of the story. We're going to jump to the last page, so to speak, of Hannah's story. We're going to see where she ends up, and then we're going to go back and see how she got there. Because I think where she ends up is so powerful, knowing that that's where she ends up, and then how did she get there? So the last, last page, so to speak, is going to be 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 2. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord, no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. 
Now she goes on to praise God for the next 10 verses, but we're going to stop with those first two. Because I feel like that is our beacon. That's our guiding light. That's our last page of where we're going this morning. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in God. Hannah's song is one of rejoice, happiness, elation. So this is where we are going to the point of happiness and elation in God. That's our future. That's the last page. So how does Hannah's story begin? Well, it begins with a yearly feast. If we start in um, 1 Samuel 1, we have this time of celebration. Similar to Thanksgiving that we have that's approaching, and that's actually why I started to think about Hannah, was the fact that we are approaching Thanksgiving, and who gives thanks but Hannah? So Thanksgiving is this time of celebration. We gather with family, we gather with friends, We have somewhat of a typical traditional meal, turkey, stuffing, maybe mashed potatoes or potatoes of some sort. Um, My house, we have colored greens, we have rice, we have green bean casserole. We have some kind of traditional gathering that is this opportunity for us to look back on the year or look at the time that we're living in right now and say, how do I give thanks for the many blessings that God has given us. For most of us, it's a joyous time. It's a celebration. But we also have some that it's a time of sorrow. It's a time for remembering those people we might have lost over the year. I know for Rochelle's friend, it's the first Thanksgiving without her grandmother. So it can be this time of sorrow. And the setting for our scripture this morning is this yearly feast, this time of celebration, this year after year, the Jewish men coming together to celebrate at the tabernacle and to worship God. It is a time of celebration and a time of joy. It's recognizing God's deliverance through the desert to Canaan And then God's blessings on the year's crops. Elkanah, who is Hannah's husband, in 1 Samuel 1.1, they would go from their town to the sanctuary, to the tabernacle, to worship God. And they did this on a yearly basis. And at that worship, they would offer sacrifices And the sacrifice was often offered in the midst of a feast, not much like our Thanksgiving. So while everyone is there celebrating and worshiping and loving God and being joyful about the year and the year's crops and the harvest, one person is not celebrating, and that's Hannah. Looking at how she's described in Samuel 1, the first chapter, Hannah is depressed. In verse 7 and 8, 
she's described as she's wept. She's not eating. In verse 10, it says that she's in deep anguish and weeping bitterly. In verse 15, she's deeply troubled. Verse 16, it says she's in great anguish and grief. So while everyone else is there celebrating, Hannah is depressed. Why? Hannah is the first wife of Elkanah. It's obvious that she has a husband who loves her. In verse 5, it says Elkanah or excuse me, Elkanah gave a double portion of meat to Hannah. To his second wife, he has two wives, and her sons and daughters, he would give one portion of meat. He gave Hannah that double portion, and it says, because he loved her. So to me, this is one of the ways that he also is trying to pull her out of her depression. I love you, Hannah, so I'm going to give you more. And he definitely tries to pull her out of that depression. He tries. In verse 8, he says to her, Why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? And I hear tenderness in his voice as he's saying that, showing her care and concern. But he actually falls short. The next statement in verse 8, he says, I don't, me- don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And I hear this as him saying, but aren't I enough? I should be enough. But obviously not. So the first way that Hannah is, is uh, feeling depressed is that she's misunderstood by this very loving husband. So her, is, her depression isn't because she doesn't have a loving husband. She does, and yet she is still depressed. Now, what's one thing in biblical times that actually gives women an identity and a purpose? A status, and that's children. The ideal family at this time is a very large family. Genesis 1.28 tells people to be fertile and multiply to fill the earth. So there's disdain and disrespect that's placed on women who have no children. And Hannah is barren. So, as women, I believe we've come a long way in what gives us an identity and purpose and status in the world. However, then, as in now, some women, uh, for some women, having children gives us purpose, gives us an identity, gives us status. For Hannah, she would travel every year for this feast to a festival celebrating crops and harvest and fruit. And every year for Hannah, it's a reminder that another year has gone by where she is without a child. She has no fruit. She has nothing in her own personal 
harvest. So to top that off, Hannah is the first wife of two. Now, in the ancient law codes, the first wife is protected and often has special rights. And second wives are generally brought in in order to bear children if the first wife can't, or if the first wife is unable to do so. So with Elkanah, or Elkanah, excuse me, I keep mispronouncing his name, Elkanah, once Hannah can't have children, he brings in a second wife in order to bear children for him. That's another reminder that Hannah can't have children. And Penina, the second wife, has an abundance. She has sons and daughters, plural. Not only that, but she provokes Hannah about it. She taunts her. She teases her about it, adding to Hannah's depression and grief. Hannah, in, I'm sorry, Penina in verse 7 is described as a rival to Hannah. Now, when I think of that term rival, I think of competing teams. For my Chicago Bears, that's the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> For the Lakers in the 80s, that was the Celtics. For the Dodgers, that's the Giants. <laughs> or Washington this year, but there are specific rivals that I know for the Chicago Bears, when we beat the Packers, it is a sweet, sweet victory. Actually, this season, if we win, it's a sweet victory. But really, if we beat the Packers, that is just bragging rights for the next year. That is our rival. When we win, we rub it in. <laughs> it has happened. <laughs> but that's our rival. We don't like them. Panina is Hannah's rival. She's rubbing it in that Hannah can't have children. She's provoking Hannah to irritate her. She's bullying her. Now, why would she do that? Maybe Panina felt inferior to Hannah because she's second wife and Hannah is first wife. And there's special treatment given to first wife. Maybe it's because Hannah gets a double portion. Maybe she's jealous because Elkanah loves Hannah more. So Benina is picking on Hannah and attacking her weakness. Again, thus leading to depression. So when I look at this, it's no wonder that Hannah is distraught. She feels helpless. She feels deeply troubled. And she's in great anguish and grief. Her daily life is miserable. And she has a husband that says, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Feeling misunderstood. And yet, here's where the last page comes in. We know the end of the story. My heart exalts 
in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord, no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Again, the last page, the end of the story, gives us feelings of happiness and elation. That's not where Hannah's starts out. That's not her depression or her distress. So the question then becomes, how does she get that change? How does she go from this depression and anguish and grief and feeling distraught to elation, happiness, and rejoice? First, we can read in verse 10. Hannah, in her deep anguish, prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. In the midst of this anguish, she still manages to provide for us some guidance as how we should respond in our own times of depression. She is praying through her tears. She is praying in her heart. As I'm reading this passage and studying this, I could just picture her in anguish, hanging her head, having her weep so much that she could no longer speak. Her lips were moving, but her voice is not heard. She goes to God at this time of despair, and it's a deep passion, a deep devotion to God. Now Eli, who is a descendant of Aaron, a priest at that tabernacle where everybody was celebrating, he guards the Ark of the Covenant there. He sees her exchange and her prayer to God. And yet another person here misinterprets her, misunderstands her, because Eli thinks she's drunk. Now, I'm imagining she is just so weeping and probably falling down and just eyes swollen with grief. She's probably heaving in her sorrow and distress and nothing is coming out of her mouth. So Eli is looking at that behavior and says, what is wrong with this woman? First of all, why is she here? She's in the the tabernacle. This is a place for men. Why is she here? What is she doing? And she's weeping and heaving with grief and sorrow. So he sees that behavior and thinks the only logical explanation is she's drunk. She's erratic. She's, uh, she's, just, she's in the wrong place. And so he rebukes her. Now the irony of this whole situation is that Eli is a priest. And he should be able to recognize genuine faith in front of him, and yet he misunderstands her. He doesn't 
understand that it's grief that has brought her there. That what she is doing is praying to the Lord out of her depression. Hannah, given that chance to explain, tells him what she is doing. She says to him in verse 15, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your, wicked, your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Hannah was there pouring out her soul to the Lord. This explanation shifts Eli's thinking. And he gives something Hannah so desperately needs. He responds to her, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. What Eli gives Hannah is hope. Hope is a very powerful force. Hope is powerful when we are downcast. Hope tells us that there's a way out of this helplessness. There's a way out of this dead end, this turmoil, this deep, deep anguish. Hope tells us that things will be better in the future. Hope tells us that this too shall pass. And Eli bestows Hannah with that hope. Now, if we jump ahead, Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 2b, I'm going to say the second half of that, all the way to 5 says, And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. I want to say that again. Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit That has been given to us. Hope does not disappoint us. That hope that Eli prays over Hannah and bestows on her helps her. Her face, we read, is no longer downcast. She was able to eat. The next day, it says she was able to worship God with everyone else. And when she went home, she was able to lie with her husband and conceive a son. She had hope. Now, another little piece of this I found so powerful. Hannah, during her prayer, is asking God to remember her. To not forget your servant, 
by giving her a son. When she's talking to Eli, she says in verse 18, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Now, the piece I found so powerful is this word favor. The Hebrew word for favor has the same root as the name of Hannah. Hannah's name means favor and grace. I feel like she's asking God via the priest, Eli, may your servant find Hannah in your eyes. To find her, to remember her in the midst of her deep anguish and despair. To find her in depression. To find Hannah. And God does finds her. He grants her a son who she has named Samuel because I asked the Lord for him. Now next, it's not about the sacrifices or rituals or traditions. What's interesting is it's about what's in Hannah's heart. They were there at the tabernacle to celebrate the yearly feast, the sacrifice or the ritual or the tradition of the yearly feast. And yet, it's about what's in Hannah's heart. The Lord heard her heart when she was praying. The outward display of the worship year after year after year is good. Hannah and Elkanah journeyed each year to the tabernacle to do that, to worship God for the feast. They were pious people. Hannah went with him. She is a pious person. But what we can also learn from Hannah is that the behaviors on the outside should also match the worship in our heart. She went to God in deep anguish. She didn't try to hide that distress from God. She prevented, or I'm sorry, she presented the distress to God and still worshiped God through that distress. Therefore, what we can learn from her is that the way to truly worship is to have the behaviors that we display on the outside match what is on the inside, what is in our heart. And that's what God sees. That's what God responds to. Presenting ourselves to God as we are, even in the midst of this anguish and distraught and depression, presenting ourselves to God as we are is also worship. It allows us to come to God no matter what is happening. And God honors that. God addresses that. God hears that. God remembers you in that. Now I want to jump back to the end of the story again. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice 
in victory. There is no one like the Lord, no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. When God sees Hannah, remembers her, gives her that son, her life has changed. He opened her womb. But there's another part of that story. There's a plot twist that happens. God gives Hannah that son, and she willingly gives that son right back to God. Her vow in verse 11 says, and I'm reading from the NIV version on this, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Hannah, when she has that son, I think she realizes that her son was never hers to begin with. Her son was always God's. Therefore, Hannah relinquishes her firstborn son, whom she has longed for, whom she has cried out for, whom she has prayed for, and she gives him back to God. How sacrificial is that? She weans Samuel and then takes him to Eli, so she fulfills her vow, her vow and that he would be raised as the Lord's all the days of his life. She tells Eli when she returns with Samuel, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And Samuel worshipped the Lord there. It's a mother's sacrifice. And it reminds me of Abraham's sacrifice as well. That sacrificial act of willing to sacrifice his one and only Isaac, whom God promised him. It also reminds me of God's own sacrificial act. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now usually at the beginning of my sermons I talk about how my inspiration comes for this scripture. For this passage... I feel like there are multiple reasons why God wanted us to hear about Hannah. First of all, I think there's a personal application of this passage. I think there are times when we are troubled and we're in anguish and we're in the midst of depression. When others are rejoicing in their abundance and growth, we might keenly be aware of our own lack of it. When others are celebrating a time of thanksgiving, we might be saddened by our own loss and grief. Maybe we feel helpless and distraught. I think God wants us to follow Hannah's example and pray to the Lord, pouring out our soul, 
having our hearts, not just our outward appearance, but our hearts worship God. And in doing so, we can rely on the hope, knowing that hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Turning it over to God. God can do miraculous things. And we've got the end of the story. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. So the first part is that personal application of that passage. And I also think there's a church application as well. I feel like as a church, we have been through a lot over the last two years. During these last two years, we've had two pastors who have left us suddenly. During these last two years, we are keenly aware of our own lack of harvest in the seats. And I believe we even have times where we as a church start to feel helpless and downcast about the future of our church. And so as a church, I feel like we can use Hannah's example as well. I think we can remember that our church was never our church to begin with. It was always God's. And we need to know that there's hope for Joy Christian Center in whatever God has for us. We are going to put our sole focus on God through prayer and through both our outward and our inward worship, even in times of feeling helpless and downcast and even distress. We can take what we have and take what we desire, pray to the Lord, pour out our soul as a church, and turn it over to God and see how God will use his miraculous power to not just further joy, but further the kingdom of God. Which brings us back to the beginning of our sermon and the end of Hannah's story. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. And here's where she turns it back to God. There is no holy one like the Lord. No one besides you. There is no rock like our God. That's what we need to remember. That's where we need to go. That's our beacon. That's our light. That's where we're going. Personally and as a church. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, in every season, you are still here, you are still our rock, 
you are still our God. God, there are times when we can come to you and rejoice because of the blessings that you've given us. There are times when we can still come to you in our despair and in our anguish. And God, we thank you so much that you see us in both times, that you see us in our despair, you see us in our anguish, you see us in our distress, and you also see us in our glory and in our victory and in our joy. And we know that it is all, all, all because of you. We can do nothing without you. So, Lord, we turn over our own lives, we turn over this church to you, knowing that it was always yours to begin with, and ask that you will continue to guide us, continue to lead us, continue to take us where you want us to be. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.